if you go to Matthew and take a left, two books, you'll hit Zechariah. This is a uh, this is a, a series I have been longing to preach for about uh, six to eight months around that. So I am I'm thankful. I'm thankful for everything, as Milton said. I'm thankful for <clears throat> just the the healing power of God, the sustaining power of God, uh, to to still let me do what I love doing, and that's preaching the word and pointing everybody's heart and eyes to Jesus. And we pray that will happen again this morning. Zechariah chapter 1, uh, we're just going to look at the first six verses. These provide an introduction to, uh, to this book, but also we'll go into why I believe this is a, a, a pertinent and timely study for us. The Word of God says, In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. Lord, we ask for the, the power of your word capture our hearts today. Lord, we come into this room not looking to stay the same. We come into this room as your gathered people understanding this is your time to ignite our hearts for passion for you and to see Jesus glorified. Father, accomplish your will for us. And I pray, Lord, that we would have hearts eager and leaning forward and yearning to have the truth spoken to us so we don't stay settled but we, we know more how to live for you and love you. May we experience your love this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, when we face prolonged seasons of struggle in our lives, whether that comes spiritually or physically, financially, maybe relationally, it's as though over cloud, uh, overcast clouds can just hang over our days. Even, even the, the prettiest blue skies, we just feel there's overcast, whether that's a, a, a relational or spiritual overcast. And we, in those seasons, grow frustrated trying, to, trying to, to climb out of something or climb up something to, to see higher, but the wall that we try to climb up doesn't seem to let us go. We wonder about God's plan. We wonder about his purposes for us. We question his presence with us. We're tempted to give up, we're tempted to give in in our exhaustion, our weariness, and our fears. But most importantly, we long for a break in the clouds. Can light just come through? But it doesn't seem to come. In the struggle, frustration, confusion, we choose 
rather a path of least resistance to achieve some sort of peace and security that we can grab onto in our lives. But often we choose a path of our own design rather than the path God has for us. See, when we don't get answers from God to bring relief to us or to provide direction for us, we'll forge our own path that makes sense to what we want and what we like and what we think. We're not turning our backs on God. We just think he's doing his thing, so we'll go ahead and do our thing. The book of Zechariah was written for just that situation, for those overcast clouds, for that yearning and that longing for light to break through. The people of God find themselves back in the promised land after their exile to Babylon. But in their minds, God doesn't seem eager to reestablish Jerusalem like they had hoped. Babylon had come and under the command of Nebuchadnezzar had come and raised and burned Jerusalem in 587 B.C. This is after hundreds of years of God establishing and then calling to his people to be his people in his place. The first exiles to return was in 548 B.C. under King Cyrus of Persia. They came back with Ezra. Ezra led the first wave. They came to uh, rebuild, and there was a laying of the foundation for the temple, and there were great cries that went out. And Ezra tells us that some of those cries were, were the joyous cries of the, the young who knew that God was reestablishing his people in his place. And he said the other ones were the cries of the old who remembered the temple when they were kids. And they had come back, and they said, this is nothing of what we left. But after opposition and difficulty, the work on the temple ceased for 20 years. That's 20 years of uh, overcast clouds. For the original hearers, uh, there were 20 years of unfulfilled promises. In Jeremiah 31 and 33, the promises of personal knowledge with God, of social justice and security in God's place. And in Ezekiel 34 and 37, the the promise of being fed by good shepherds and set and established in their land, God's place. None of this is taking place in their minds, in their eyes. So God called the prophet Haggai, which is the, the book right before Zechariah, He had a ministry for four months. That's all, probably why his book's only three chapters. He's got a ministry for four months, and he's calling people back from their personal agendas back to God's agenda. He says, why are you so into your paneled houses while God's temple lies in ruins? personal agenda. Get off your personal agenda back on God's agenda. See, God still wanted a place on the earth to declare his glorious presence. Zechariah comes in within a couple months of Haggai's last prophecy to call for restoration, not of a place. Haggai's calling for the place to be restored. Zechariah's calling for hearts to be restored. See, God wants a place for his presence, but more importantly, he wants a people for his presence in your notes. The book of Zechariah is the gospel story of redemption. God calling to a discouraged, distracted, desperate, and disillusioned people to restore his presence and promises to them. It's the story of God breaking through the clouds with his glorious light. Jesus 
is all over this book. It's going to be fun to discover him. There are 11 direct quotations in the New Testament from this book, and there are 64 allusions in the New Testament to this book. We have the benefit now of our present-day perspective afterwards, after Jesus has fulfilled everything the Old Testament prophets declared of him. We can look back on this and see that Zechariah is promising Jesus as the light that will pierce the clouds of confusion and cynicism. This book is good for us to study as a church. Study, one, personally as believers, but I think for us as a church. Because of our need to have Jesus' light pierce through the clouds that hang over us, causing us to question God's presence with us and causing us to question God's purpose for us. This study will offer crucial insight into our own lives where where we personally may have settled into self-interest and temporal security rather than the kingdom advancement that God's called us to participate in. This study, I, I trust, will turn our eyes upward to the glory that will be revealed at the end of time and focus us on our eternal home that awaits us uh, all who have trusted in Christ for salvation. This study will deepen our passion for God. This study will, will, will deepen our walk with a newness of the life that God has bought for us in Christ. In short, this study will cause us to exalt And whenever that happens, we know that God ultimately is coming after our hearts. And that's what he's doing with this study. So in the first verse, we are introduced to the prophet Zechariah. We know him a bit from uh, the other historical books, Ezra and Nehemiah. In Ezra 5, he's listed as one of the, the exiles that are returning in the first wave with Ezra. And then Nehemiah lists him as a priest. So we know he's, he's influential, he's a leader within the community of God, but God is speaking directly to him, saying, I want you to bring this word. His name, the name Zechariah means Yahweh remembers. And when you put his name together, this is pretty interesting, and you can't, you can't take this too far, but it's fun to think about, because God means, uh, he's got detail in everything that happens. So he's, got, he's listed as Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Edo. Berechiah means the Lord blesses, and Edo means in time. So if you put all that together, Yahweh remembers and blesses in his time. And that's a great caption for this entire book. God, the the blessing will be seen in the unfolding of all of the promises God made to restore his people in his place with his presence. And God, just remember always, God empowers his servants for their task, even if it's simply a name. God empowers all of us for the mission he's put us on. And the clues of his work are all around us if we're looking for them. He's always working, church. He's always using us in our lives to accomplish his purpose, his kingdom advancement. And we must train ourselves to look for it. And then we learn in verse 1 that the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah. And this little phrase has enormous ramifications for everyone. Everyone that's ever been alive or will be alive. Here is the truth. God speaks. 
And it has enormous implications and ramifications. One of the greatest marks of God as the one true God is that he speaks. He communicates. He communicates with his people and he communicates with his enemies. And the, the distinguishing attribute that's of God that sets him apart from all false gods is his speaking. False gods don't speak because they're, they're not alive. They're dead. They're not existent. God speaks. Our God speaks. He makes himself known. It may not be according to our time frame. It may not be according to what we hope he will say. But church, God speaks. And he speaks his words. Many a man try to get God to say what they want him to say. But he will not bow down to man's authority. He is the sovereign authority of all, and his word stands. This also means that God doesn't speak because we have some inherent value to where he owes us communication. It's not as though we are so morally perfect and beautiful that God is is bound to speak to us. No, the glory of him speaking to us and speaking his words is that we have no value. And he, he, he doesn't have to say anything to us. And he he comes to us in his grace and his mercy. He does not owe anyone an explanation. He owes no man an excuse. He speaks as the authority to exalt his authority and to call people toward his authority. Church, we live in a culture that uh, that tries to center authority in self. And all we have is a bunch of people running around trying to be king and queen. And at some point, we step on each other's toes. But the need for the culture that we live in is to see a people and to know a people, to relate with a people that that honor God and obey God as the final authority. It's one of the distinguishing marks of God's people is they live under his authority as their king. And what is the word that came? First thing, we're told, verse 2, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. Here is what... Zechariah gets to say first, he was angry. Let's think about the anger of the Lord for a minute. The anger of God is not a a temperamental or arbitrary anger. God's anger is the response of his holiness and purity towards sin. See, God is not, anger is not one of his attributes. Like we list off the attributes of God. He is good and kind and... Uh, loving, and he is holy, and he is just. We don't say, and he's angry. No, because anger is a result of his justice and his holiness in his character. In his justice, he has to, in his holiness, he has to respond to sin. And he responds in anger. And God's not wrong. Uh, because he is so pure, his, he is just and righteous in his execution of his anger. God's not wrong for his anger because his anger does not emanate from some misplaced desire for vindication like we see. I've been wronged. I want to be vindicated. I'm angry. And so I'll manipulate. I'll I'll force somebody to acknowledge my, my good. God's holiness will always be vindicated. His anger brings attention to his holiness and his moral purity. And the closest thing that we can come to understanding the perspective of God's anger is when we're rightfully outraged 
at the death or, or the abuse of children. It's right for us to be. There's a holy anger that stirs up in us when children are wrong. It's because we cherish children for their innocence. Now, children are not, think carefully with me, children are not morally innocent. They are intellectually innocent. See, what we grieve, we don't want our kids to make the same mistakes we make because we have a knowledge of those mistakes, then a grief that happens and we feel and we want them to avoid that. And so a child doesn't have the knowledge that we have, so we tell them, don't make the mistakes I've made. And you won't feel the way I'm feeling. And so children have an intellectual innocence, and it's appropriate. A righteous anger rises up when we hear of the abuse or the the death, the killing of children, and we inwardly yearn. When we hear about that, we uh, we yearn for a just and righteous response. Like Somebody has to step in and right that wrong. And that's a good response to have. But understanding that this response is because we're made in God's image and we have an ability to, to do something like he does, he has this response toward every and all sin because it emanates from his purity. We struggle with the anger of God and God's anger because I think sometimes we, we want to plead our own particular innocence in us, we know we're not morally innocent, but we claim intellectual innocence when it comes out. God, I didn't know I was supposed to do that. I didn't know. We know we're morally wrong. But can I just be like innocent, of uh, intellectually innocent? I just didn't know. You didn't tell me, God. But God doesn't do that. Our, our, we are not intellectually innocent because God has written his law on every heart. We learn that in Romans 1, verse 20. So we are, Paul says, we're all without excuse. We are without excuse. But God's anger has come. God God starts off saying, I was angry with your fathers. Because the fathers lived faithless lives. And he wants them to learn from the past. Israel was not innocent in their relationship to God. They were not innocent morally or intellectually. They provoked God's anger with their continued rebellion. The fathers of the exiles, going back several generations, were evil, we're told, in their ways and their deeds. And at the end of verse 4, the Lord of hosts, thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and your evil deeds. They lived with God's presence as if they were entitled to it. God owed it to them. We are God's people. He will never take us away from his presence. He will never take his presence away from us. That's ludicrous, and that's how they approached every prophet that warned them. God will close the door on his presence if you keep on mocking him. While they went through the the motions of worship, their hearts, Isaiah said, were far from God. Isaiah 29, and the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. You know, we talk about in the Christian life not living, just checking off boxes. All Israel did. They checked off boxes constantly and God came to them saying, 
That's not relationship. That's ultimately something that you're trying to earn. You're earning an acceptance before me. That's not how I do it. I want a relationship with you. They brought on God's judgment because of their unbelief. They were judged for their faithlessness, and they were kicked out of the land of promise. It, it, it's take two of the Garden of Eden, where God's people in his place, with his presence, lived faithlessly. The Adam and Eve's, Adam's sin was faithlessness. He didn't believe God. And God kicked him out, kicked both of them out as a result of their sin. The people of God do the same exact thing. Now, we're, we're your people in your place, but we're going to do it our way. God said, then you'll get kicked out. Their faithlessness prevented their experience of the promises that God wanted for them in his presence. They hardened their hearts, we're told. Uh, at the end of verse 4, they did not hear or pay attention. In, in, in several Old Testament books and in the, the, the prophets, they hardened their hearts, even though God sent them the prophets to plead with them to return to their first love. They ignored God and kept living their self-interested lives until God closed the door on their opportunity to repent. 2 Chronicles 36 recounts all the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. And when you put time frame to this, when we read quickly of God's expressed judgment toward people, it, we get the image that he's just flying off the handle and he can't control himself, but what we don't see is the hundreds of years of patience and pleading with his people to return to him. Hundreds of years. The people repented. We're told that in verse, uh, the end of verse 6. So they, re they repented. And said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. But they repented after judgment came, not before. They repented when they tasted the consequences of their faithlessness and rebellion. But God's word won because he was serious. That's what, if we want to pass on wisdom to anybody that's coming behind us in the faith, or is new to the faith. Like, you know, a smart person learns from his own mistakes, but a wise person is able to learn from everybody else's mistakes. Zechariah is coming with God's words saying, hey, guys, be wise. Don't repeat the same mistakes. Because God's word will win. He says, your fathers, where are they? The prophets, do they live forever? Beginning of verse 6, but my words and my statutes, did they not overtake your fathers? God's pointing again, I'm God. I have the last word. But in his love and his mercy, he wants these people, these 
new, uh, the, the, the ones who have returned to his presence to avoid the past mistakes of the fathers. The sins of the returned exiles were about to repeat the sins of the generations before them, but these were sins of omission. It's different than sins of commission. Sins of commission are where we do what we're not supposed to do. We know we're not supposed to do it, and we just do it. In our rebellion, just do what we're not supposed to do. But sins of omission are when we don't do what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to do something, and we just Mm. neglect it. That's still just as sinful when we know God wants us to do something, and we don't do it. The generations before had committed both. The returned returned exiles, in neglecting the rebuilding of the temple and becoming settled down in their self-interest of politics, economy, spirituality, they had begun to live life without God. They were walking down the same path toward faithlessness. They were ignoring God on their way to what they thought was, let's achieve our own security and our own significance. But God, again, in his mercy, he calls them to repent. And what is that word? (coughs) Excuse me. That word is return. In verse 3, therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. The call to the people was one word. In essence, it was repent. And we read in the Gospels that when John the Baptist started his ministry and Jesus, when he began his ministry, they used the same exact word, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I read years ago that repentance is the first word of the Gospel. And it's for those who think they're okay with God and God's okay with them, which is everybody. We're going to try to figure out some way to appease God and make make ourselves think that he's okay with us, and we're okay with him. But the call is, return to me. When God's people carry on without his involvement long enough, uh, they begin to think their success is a product of their, their effort or wisdom. When we walk down this path, we become only concerned with what's immediately in front of us rather than understanding that the path that we're on in our own self-interest is leading us toward destruction. We live distracted. We live distracted by the immediate needs around us, the temporal things, and lose sight of the eternal. But God's purposes and his purposes for us are for the eternal. He wanted, in this context, he wanted his temple rebuilt because it was a sign of his future kingdom that would come with his anointed shepherd king. God pursues his people to accomplish his future kingdom because that is our best good. Church, when we are living for the future kingdom, not our own petty fiefdoms now, our own little kingdoms that we're trying to establish, we live our best good. See, it's not living for today. It's living for that day. That's when we find the success and the security, and the significance, the identity that we long for. When we find that apart from God, uh, it will just, we'll be grasping at fog. We can see it, but we just can't hold on to it. Our success, our security, our significance is only grounded when it's founded upon Jesus alone. 
The call to return was the call to turn away. The repentance, repentance means turning your back on sin, 180 degrees. We are heading in this direction. To repent is to turn around, but that's only half of repentance. I haven't fully repented if all I've done is turned around. The other half of repentance is now pursue the opposite direction. God's saying, stop pursuing your own agenda. Stop pursuing your self-interest. Stop pursuing the temporal. Turn from it. Pursue the eternal. Pursue God alone. God in his fullness. It's it's calling us, as the people of God, to abandon self-pursuit and embrace a God-pursuit. The glory of pursuing God is that when we place ourselves under his spout, we place ourselves under his unending promises that flow over us. When we return to him, he returns to us. James 4.8 reminds us of this, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now this is very interesting to look at. See how many times the phrase Lord of hosts appears. This gives the caption, this is, God is not sitting around like, just return to me and I'll return to you, as if he's just going to kind of walk with our pace. No, think, think the prodigal son returning, and the father sees him far off and runs to his son. That's the posture of God when we repent. He's yearning, longing, calling to us. And when we turn to him and begin walking toward him, he thrusts himself upon us. See, Lord of hosts is his battle name when he's achieving victory in battle. And it's a battle when we come to him and turn from our sin and he thrusts himself upon us. What a great, glorious God we serve that will not allow us to continue in our personal agendas, in our sinfulness and rebellion, but he calls us and we turn, we feel his force. That's the mercy that we have. And that's the God we serve. And, and, and that's the God that, that wants to dislodge us from the temporary and focus our hearts yet again on our first love who dwells in all eternity that prepares a place for us, and he set a table for us. And church, he wants more people. Not just us. It's not a club that he's closed. The club has an open call. Come. Come, you who don't have any money. Come buy and eat. Isaiah 55. This is the God. This is the future kingdom that we're a part of. And he says, I will return to you. And these first few verses, I think, set uh, they're, they're a short intro for all that God will restore to, his, to fulfill his covenant promises to his people. Faith in God opens the door to his promises. Faith in God gives us access to the promises of God. And this entire book is about what God will do in restoring himself to his people. And that's the story of the gospel. God doing the work to reconcile his sinful people to himself. Now, there's a list right there I gave you in your notes. That's every chapter. So in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, we'll look at the verses. Let's just journey quickly through this verse to see all that God's going to restore. Look at verse 16 in chapter 1. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. God says, my presence is here. Then in chapter 2, look at verse 5. 
And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. God restoring his glorious presence to his people. Look at chapter 3, verse 4. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him, and said... And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Oh, how, what a righteousness. Remove the filth, put on the righteousness. In chapter 4, verse 6. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. God is establishing a witness and a purpose. He's, he's restoring that. Look at chapter 5. I forgot to write that verse. I apologize. It's verse 4. So you want to write that in your notes. Verse 4. It's a flying scroll. We're going to look at this in a few weeks. A flying scroll and a woman in a basket. Very weird. But I believe what it's communicating is God's justice that's coming and restored. I will send it out. Verse 4. I will send it out. This is a flying scroll. Declares the Lord of hosts. And it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. God is saying, my justice will. It's the only thing that's going to remain. And it burns up everything that is not holy in my presence. Chapter 6, God restores authority. Look at verse 15. And those who are far off shall come and help to rebuild the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. God is looking for the obedience of his people in his place. And chapter 7, chapter 7 and chapters 8 are are sermons that Zechariah is preaching. In chapter 7, he's telling them, verse 10, I'm going to restore the heart of my people. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against one another, against another in your heart. God's restoring the heart of his people. Chapter 8, he's promising to restore the peace of his people. Look at, at verse 12. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their due, and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. Sowing of peace. Oh, man, do we need that restored in our lives. Chapter 9, God's restoring a picture of God restoring kingdoms. These are oracles that are the last part of this, uh, this book. Where are we? Verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. God's bringing his kingdom. See, that's the, the allusion to the day. Uh, uh, the, what's the one before Easter? Palm Sunday. Thank you, Mom. That's the one. That's the uh, triumphal entry. That's what I was also thinking of. Uh, chapter 10, God's restoring an identity to his people. See, when, we're, when we go off our own way, we lose our identity. God wants to restore that. I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them. And they shall be as many as they were before. Here's our identity in the redemption that God has for us. I have redeemed them. Chapter 11. Chapter 11 is a bold 
proclamation against the shepherds of Israel. They did not do their job. These are the chapters that scare me. Yeah, I'm not, because of what we have in Christ, I'm, I'm sobered by all the passages that we know that tell us about hell and, and uh, being apart from him. But when God tells shepherds something, it perks my ears up and say, whoa, I need to make sure I'm following the good shepherd. And that's what the promise is, that God's going to give a good shepherd, but he's going to be a shepherd king. Look at verse 7. So I became the shepherd of the flock, doomed, doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. I became the shepherd. God's restoring his rule and reign over his people. In chapter 12, we learn the price that's going to come for this restoration. Look at verse 7. Is not the right verse. Verse 10. Sorry about that. Verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. See the, there's a, a double entendre in the the title for this series, Light Pierced Through. Zechariah is prophesying that Jesus will be that light to, to do away with the overcast clouds, but it's Jesus whom will be pierced. The light of Christ will be pierced in order to secure all the promises for us. Then in chapter 13, there is the, the refining that happens, and this, we see this in the New Testament as well. When God brings us to himself, he purifies his people in his presence. I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. Passages like that, verses like that have to be in Peter's mind when he's writing to the churches. And it's recorded in 1 Peter 1 with the fiery trials that come upon us. They're, they're, they're making our faith genuine. That's how God interacts with his people in his presence. And then in chapter 14, we have the repetition, on that day, on that day, there's a restoration or promise of victory that occurs. Look at verse 8. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. Living waters will flow. As far as you can see in any direction, God's word stands and God's promises stand. Our faith feels and holds on to those promises. So, what's that mean for us? We have to return to him to get his return. We return for return. We want God in the thrust of his, uh, his consuming fire to come upon us. Let's think about where this might happen in our lives. Where might you be living today, just in the regular course of your life, you're living without God. He doesn't have access. He doesn't have word into that aspect of your life. What categories come to mind as needing from the list above? A restoration of his presence, glory, righteousness, witness, and purpose, justice, authority, heart, peace, kingdom, identity. 
His shepherding of your soul, the price that was paid, the refining, the victory. What, what stands out? As I need that. I need that to be restored in my life. Where might there be distraction with the temporary that the eternal needs to come in touch? Whether that be relationally, spiritually, physically, financially, what, what, what are we distracted by that God just simply needs to come, His light needs to shine on that? What has discouraged you that needs the light of Christ to pierce through? Church, I think this is what God is doing through this, this series. I think He's dislodging something in our hearts that we have not, maybe we're not fully surrendered. Maybe we've just taken back and we're just doing our own thing. God wants to dislodge us in the present so we can be renewed by the eternal. So the biggest question is, what does God want to dislodge? You want to dislodge where you're finding your security, where you're finding your significance. You're not looking for your identity in Christ. You're looking for identity in something around you. What does God want to dislodge? We have hope. And that's all over the promises that are in this book. We have hope for God's promises to come to us and for us to experience. But understanding they might not come as quickly or maybe with the contours that we expect, but God speaks and he speaks his word. He remembers and he blesses in his time. And that's exactly what we need. The church... Trust the Lord. Return to Him. Return to Him. We cannot think that we don't have to return. If, if we are tempted in this moment to think, I'm good. No, we're not. In some category of our lives, we need to return. We need to surrender. And we need to have Him capture us from the inside out. Father, thank You for the blessing of Your Word. Thank You for the power of Your Word. God, we, we trust your promise that when your word goes forth, it accomplishes exactly what you want. And when it returns to you, it returns with fruitfulness. God, we ask for a fruitfulness to come about from our receiving and believing your word this morning. Thank you, Lord.